in September on his podcast. He had a grandmother, and again, he pastors a church, but this isn't the lady he was pastoring. He was calling into his podcast. So not someone he chapters on a regular basis. She called in and asked about her grandson was going to be marrying a transgendered person. And what does she do about that? Uh, and he he told her basically on the on the podcast that well does your grandson know that you are a believer in Jesus Christ and does he know that uh, that you can't that your belief grandma would not would not <coughs> allow you to countenance or affirm what his decisions were and she said yeah he knows what I believe and he knows I don't affirm what he's doing. He said, well, if that's the, court, the case, then you should not only go, you should, you should take a gift. You go to this transgender wedding with your grandson and, and take a gift as well. He said, not, not attending, according to Pastor Begg, would unintentionally reinforce judgmental stereotypes. Uh, but, but that her love for them might catch them off guard. By going, her love for them might catch them off guard, and her absence would certainly reinforce Christians are judgmental, critical, and unprepared to countenance anything. Well, that was received poorly by most of reformed, if you will, world. Uh, the, the, the advice to go to a transgender wedding um, was frowned upon, and he was challenged publicly by folks, and I'm guessing privately as well. Well, then he preached a sermon, and he really kind of doubled down on what he'd already said. He did not recant. He did not pull back from it. Even, I would argue, even twisted scripture to make his point. He preached on the prodigal son, and he likened the prodigal son to this grandson. And he likened the older brother to hypocritical, judgmental Christians. Well, let's remember, the prodigal son was not returning in tow with his sin. He had turned away from his sin when he came back. So that's not what his grandson is, is it? So I think he doubled down, and I think he doubled down in a very inappropriate way, in a wrong way, and I think he twisted scripture to do it. Now, I'm not judging Alistair Hay. Please, I'm not. But I'm trying to help us think about how we ought to think about these things. How do we think about going to a transgender wedding of one of our grandchildren. And her reason was she wanted to keep relationship. And he affirmed that she needed to keep that relationship. Bill Bridges is one of the things he said. There's a number of things that are wrong with that. That, that advice, that counsel, and that use of scripture. So what is keeping the relationship? Well, by definition, that is her grandson and that will not change. And that's her, the relationship doesn't change. Now, the relations inside of that, that relationship could change, the way they relate. But at the end of the day, what are you holding on to? You're holding on to what? You're going you're to stay in a relationship by going to this, 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 this gathering, celebrate this thing, so that you can keep bridges built to do what? Go to the next thing they do? So, so, so then when they adopt children, to call them your great-grandchildren? And call that a family? When does, it ever, when does it ever come to a point that you say, no, no, I 
am your father. You all know my son, most of you. That's never going to change. But there are things that I will not countenance. I will not approve of. And another thing that's wrong, and look, um, so this is a transgender a grandson marrying a transgender. Why is it that Alistair Begg would even consider affirming that and saying go? When 50 years ago it would have been unheard of. Because that's what culture demands of us today. We must affirm these things, says the world out there. So Christian pastor says, let's affirm these things. Or not affirm them, let's support them. Let's continue to love them. And I would argue that's not loving, that is straight up hatred. That's not love. That's not kind, it's evil. Because, what is it they're getting together to do? Be married. Whose institution is marriage? God's. And who does God say marriage is between? So you're a liar, Christian, when you go to that wedding. So, Everybody laughs when I say these things or don't laugh. They think I'm crazy. Give it 10 years and grandson will be saying, Grandma, come to my wedding to this donkey. I'm marrying this animal. But come, it's, I know it's, you know, Grandma, Grandma, we know that's wrong. But you love Jesus and he knows you love Jesus. So just keep that bridge built. It's absurd, isn't it? No more absurd than transgender marriage would have been 50 years ago if I had mentioned it from this pulpit. We cannot affirm a wedding except between a man and a woman. Now, listen, you all know I, I wrestle through this in my own life. Would it be wrong for this grandmother to celebrate her grandson's birthday with her? I say no. There's no sin in having a birthday. And even if this transgender whatever was with at this birthday dinner, okay. Not going to call him Mr. or Mrs. or whatever you, I don't even know what to call yourself. It is, it is, it is not okay, Christian, to love this world more than you love your Lord. Amen. And all you can be all you can do to justify that going and being in that gathering where they're doing this heinous thing before God is a worldly focus. I don't want to lose a relationship with my grandson. It's already gone. It's gone. It's already Jesus already separated you. And what that young man needs is the gospel. Amen. And what that young man needs is his first grandmother to love him. Romans 1. Starting verse 24. Therefore God gave them up to lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Worshiping the creature is to, to, to have a transgender in the first place and to affirm that in any way, shape, or form. That's a worship of the creature. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves to do penalty for their error. This grandson's marrying a transgender. I don't know if he's marrying a woman who thinks she's a man or a man who thinks she's a woman. But either way, it's, it's, it's given up to this, this lust, this desire of the flesh, doing unthinkable things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God. Can you imagine anything more hateful to God than a man trying to join with a transgender? Insolent, haughty, boastful, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then this verse, though they, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Which, by the way, I deserve to die. And Christ saved me. So they deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. How can that be anything but straight up giving approval? Your mouth can say, I don't agree. Your mouth can say, I love Jesus. Your mouth can say, this is wrong. But I'm going to come and give you a gift. Because I don't want to lose that relationship. That's what Alistair Begg should have cautioned this ground by the way. Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 3. But sexually immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Don't be confused. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were a darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. How can you biblically say it's pleasing to the Lord to go to the, a wedding of a, of a homosexual or a man and a, and, a, and a transgender? How can you say that's pleasing to the Lord? When it's defiling the very institution, the very first institution he created, which is supposed to be a picture of Christ in the church. Take no part, take no part, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't take part in them, expose them. Going and sitting at that wedding and bringing a gift is not going to expose. Exposing is going to say, I'm not going to be there. And I'm going to tell... Your mother, your father, if they're in the picture, we don't know any of that. I'm going to tell your uncles and your aunts. I'm going to tell them, no, well, listen, don't go. For it is shameful 
even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Shame to even speak of it. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What should you do? You should not be part of that. You should expose it and bring the light of Christ into it that he might save someone. It is not loving. It is not kind. It is not right. It is not good. And Alistair Begg gave poor counsel and then doubled down on it and then, I would argue, twisted scripture. May God be merciful to him that he would repent and recant and that nobody would follow that advice that calls himself a Christian. Because, man, I don't know. I'm going to pick a number. 25% of the things I saw were in perfect support of what Alistair Begg said. And I run in Reformed Baptist circles. That's where I run. That's, where, that's the stuff I get. Most were, no, don't do that. But, hey, the Gospel Coalition, Alistair Begg's part of that, yes? I'm sure they affirm that. I'm sure they would agree with that. Okay. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 Luke chapter 14 we'll be in verses 1 through 16 we know that we know that Jesus in, his, in, the, in the final months of his earthly ministry his earthly life his face is set like flint on the cross on Calvary he has gone throughout Galilee doing miracles preaching the kingdom of God He's now in Perea doing the same thing. He's, he's condemning the Jewish leaders and the Judaism a way to be right, as a way to be right with God. He's preaching sin and repentance and salvation in him, God himself. Last week, he, the last couple of weeks, you saw he's clearly letting the Pharisees uh, know that they, 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 could, they, could, they could not be right with God through their genealogy or through their religion. And, and he warned them that, that he was going to finish his ministry and that anyone who was unwilling to believe in him would be damned. So to get today we're looking at a, a Sabbath day meal um, at a Pharisee's house. In the, in the next couple of Chapters are going to be seeing a lot of things that we we have familiar to our minds. We're going to see the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the uh, of the of the great banquet, the parable of the lost sheep, and uh, of the and the lost coin, the prodigal son. Those are all coming up, and there's so much for us to to learn. There's lots of exciting things to to hear from Jesus, and uh, my prayer is that we will actually be changed. Starting today, we'll be changed with what God has to say to us. All right. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were, they were watching him carefully. So we see him eating at a Pharisee's house on the Sabbath. Now let's remember who the Pharisees were. We've talked about this before, but let's remember who the Pharisees were. Now, you had the Sadducees that were only Pentateuch. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Um, they weren't very... Religious, they were more political. That was part of the ruling class in, in, in Israel. And then you had the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, were not very political. They were much more um, scholars and, learn, and, and uh, knew the Old Testament, used the entire Old Testament, believed in the resurrection, had better doctrine, far better doctrine than the Sadducees. 
They were the, they were the teachers. They were the ones that, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were the ones that would interpret the Old Testament and they would give people how to live. They were very pious. They were very religious. They were very good outwardly. Uh, they lived very um, religious lives. They, again, they were, they were strong biblicists. They knew their Old Testament well. Uh, they were, again, orthodox. They, they dressed with the phylacteries on their arms and their, and their hands and their tassels on their garments. They drew a lot of attention to themselves. Remember, they fasted and prayed to be seen. But very religious, very, you know, the, the people that, that would see them, that would be their example. If I can be like them, then I can, and I can never be like them because they're so holy. But if I could be more like them, then I could be right with God as well. They were kind of the, the standing. They were uh, Saul of Tarsus, Paul. He was a Pharisee. He was <coughs> killing Christians because he was so uh, religious. The common people looked up to them. The common people listened to them. They were... Uh, this, this particular Pharisee we see today was a ruler, which means he was most probably a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the 70 of the ruling 70 in all of Israel in their system. Uh, he was a ruler. He wasn't, he wasn't only a Pharisee. Uh, they, the Pharisees, we see this throughout, but the Pharisees, they kind of controlled the, the synagogues. Again, they weren't priests. They were, they were lay people but they were a special class of lay people. Uh, they, they, they had mo mainly control of the synagogues. They were, they were these leaders that were leading Jews to hell with bad doctrine, bad teaching, with bad understanding. They thought they were going to heaven because they were Jewish by birth and because they were righteous in their actions. And that's how they led people. They were false teachers. As, as the Jewish society was being secularized, this is really kind of pertinent, they were, they were, it was being secularized, these Pharisees were the ones that were trying to drag Jews back to the law. Don't live like that. Here's the law. Live by the law. That's the only way you're going to be right with God, Jew, is to live by the law. He had, Jesus had lots of interactions with these Pharisees. This is who the Pharisees were. Remember in Luke 6, when he was in Galilee, verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now, these scribes and Pharisees watched him then and wanted to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And, of course, Jesus healed that man. And the result was this in verse 11 of Luke 6. But they, the Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes, sorry, scribes, they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes were furious and they wanted Jesus eliminated. In Luke 7, another of the synagogues in Galilee, one of the Pharisees was asked him, was asked to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So Jesus went to one of the Pharisees' house for a Sabbath day meal. And at this meal there was a woman of the city. There was a prostitute. And she wept and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. And had a, had a had a a, a brokenness, a, a, a mourning. She was repented. She was worshiping, and Jesus forgave her sin. 
And the result of that was, verse 49 of 7, then those who were at table with him, the Pharisees and scribes, began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They were incensed. No one could forgive sins but God. And Jesus was healing, forgiving sins, and the Pharisees, no, only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are? It's this carpenter son from Nazareth. In Luke 11, another encounter uh, with another Pharisee at a meal at his home. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now, this Pharisee was astonished. Remember, Jesus went in, and before he reclined at table to eat, he didn't ceremonially wash his hands. And this Pharisee was astonished, angered that you he wouldn't wash his hands because that was a ceremonial law. How dare you eat without washing your hands? So, what did Jesus do? He pronounced woes, called them fools, basically condemning them because, because of their man-made religion that, that they thought could be made right, they could be made right with God. They said, you need to do this. You've got to wash your hands ceremonially like we do. Even though there's nothing in the Word that would tell you to do that in the Scriptures. They had made that a law, and they were angered that he wouldn't follow that law. Verse 53 of 11. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They were plotting to catch Jesus in heretical teaching and have him assassinated, lying in wait. So, so these, these Pharisees, they hated Jesus because, because they had a legalistic system with which to be right with God based loosely on the scriptures, but more on their own rules. And he refused to follow them. He refused to, to do what they said. And he was starting to, to, to cause them to say, to, to lose some power with the people, because remember, the people were listening to him. So, so these, these Pharisees were very self-righteous, and they thought that their religion and their birth would be enough to get them to heaven. And that's, and Jesus clearly taught against that. Another encounter in Luke 13 we saw recently with a Pharisee in Korea. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and behold there was a woman who had been a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Remember you, you had this woman who, who, was, who would have been thought again to be unclean. She was bent over for 18 years. She had severe scoliosis. And he, Jesus called her up to the front in the synagogue during their worship service and he, and he healed her. He straightened her out. And the ruler of the synagogue, he was, he was a, and, 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 and he also was probably a, uh, he was a Pharisee for sure. He was indignant toward Jesus for, for healing her on the Sabbath. He went on, you know, the six days you have to heal. Don't heal her now. So Jesus called them hypocrites. They wouldn't even have mercy on this this blood relative of Abraham. Down to verse 17. As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced, all the glorious things that were done by him. So, so again, he irritated these Pharisees. He made them look bad. Everywhere he went, they hated him. So why would Jesus keep interacting with these Pharisees? Why does he keep going to these invited meals? Why would he keep doing that? Well, one reason I would say he keeps doing that, one, because he, he like us, 
is called to seek and save the lost, so he's going to go everywhere and proclaim the gospel. But another is, hey, the apostle Paul, Saul, was a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. All came to know the Lord. Why keep going into danger's way? Why keep going where you're going to be looked at and watched and argued with? To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he kept doing. He, he dined with sinners. Not like the social justice gospel will tell you. He dined with sinners. Why? To, to, to model his lordship and to call them to repentance and faith, to see their sin. That's why he dined with sinners. He didn't die with sinners to show them he loved them. He died with sinners to show them that he was God and that they needed forgiveness of their sins. Call them to repentance. Show them their religion is worthless. So here, one Sabbath, we went to dine. Now, something about this, this dining thing. Um, it, it was a Sabbath dinner, and on Sabbath days, uh, they ate well. Uh, to eat the bread on the Sabbath day was a feasting day for the Jews. Uh, the, uh, they would have lots of food. So it wasn't like they just had a little bit of bread. This would have been a pretty elaborate meal. Now, we'll get to more of this later, but they, of course, wouldn't have cooked it that day. They would have made it all the day before, and there was lots of laws and rules on how you could keep it warm till the next day and how you couldn't. We're not doing all that. But they would have they would have a large feast. So, so uh, the one of the, the things that you see in, in uh, a canon or rule in, in Judaism is whoever keeps three feasts on the Sabbath day shall be delivered from three punishments, from sorrows of the Messiah, from the judgment of hell, and from the war of Gog and Magog. So this would have been a meal. So he walks into this, this big meal. He goes to dine at the house of this ruler of the Pharisees, this very high up leader of Judaism. They were watching him carefully. They were watching him carefully. This was just another trap. Another trap to bring him to a meal and watching him for how they could catch him up and accuse him of blasphemy, which they ended up doing through lies later on, a few months later from here. But that's why they were having him come. This was just another Pharisee trying to belittle Jesus in front of his people, not Jesus' people, the Pharisees' people, trying to, trying to point out his violation of the law. So we see that a sick man was there. Imagine that. It says, and behold, remember that word, you do. It means, look, prompt attention, listen up. Here he is, he's at this Pharisee, the ruler of the Pharisee's house for this big feast on the Sabbath, and voila, right there in front of him is this sick guy. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. So as Jesus reclining at table with his, this Sanhedrin uh, member, this Pharisee, this, this muckety-muck of Judaism and all of his religious lawyers, these scribes were like lawyers. They were the ones that helped study the law and come up with all these rules. They're watching him carefully, and right in front of him there's a man who had dropsy. Dropsy. Hydro, hydropikos. Hydropikos is the Greek word. Hydro, 
means water, and pikas means appear. So appearing to have water. Dropsy is what we would think of as edema. Suffering from dropsy or edema pertaining to swelling resulting from the accumulation of lymph in the body tissues. Basically, dropsy was a swelling caused by water in the body. Uh, if you go on a plane too long, at least when I do to Kenya, I get there and my feet and my ankles are swollen. Well, that's fluid in my feet and my ankles from being down so long. Or too much blood flow. Dropsy would be a water retention. Uh, many older people, every older person I've cared for as they were going to die, develop this swelling of water on their body. As your kidney fails or your your liver fails, or as you have congenitive heart failure, you'll get this fluid on you. Well, this man had this fluid. He was visibly swollen from, from water. He was retaining water, and, you know, we take diuretics to help that condition, get rid of that water. For the Jews, dropsy was a disease that was, was dealt with or talked about in Leviticus 13.2 and 15.2. Leviticus 13, 2. When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then it should be brought to Aaron, the priest, to one of his sons, the priest. So dropsy was, was either a form of leprosy or, Leviticus 15, 2, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Now, those don't seem to point right to dropsy, but in, in Leviticus Rabbah, which is a an exegesis or a textual interpretation, a Jewish or rabbinical commentary, if you will, on the Old Testament, Leviticus 15.2 and 13.2 says this, man is evenly balanced, half of him is water, and the other half is blood. When he's deserving, the water does not exceed the blood, nor does the blood exceed the water. But when he sins, it sometimes happens that the water gains over the blood, and then he becomes a sufferer from dropsy. At other times, the blood gains over the water and it becomes leprous. So if you have too much water, you're sinning. They, they, they actually, the rabbis would argue whether dropsy was from sexual offense or from intentionally failing to have bowel movements. Okay, so they were unclean. The Jews thought of this man with dropsy as unclean. And they, they twisted some Old Testament scripture to make it mean that. So, so this man that just happened to be at this Sabbath day meal at this, this ruler of the Pharisee's house was a man that had dropsy. And so from their perspective, it would have been extremely unclean. He would have no reason to be in their presence except to try to catch up Jesus. No reason. They would not have him there. Those Pharisees would not dine with this man with dropsy because he would have been considered unclean. So there's no way they would have been there except that he just happened to be there because they knew Jesus would be there and they know what he had been doing in the past. He'd been healing people on the Sabbath. So again, big feast, member of this, this ruler, member of the Sanhedrin, invites Jesus to his, his place for a Sabbath meal. You're going to have this big, great meal. Uh, now again, Jesus knows they hate him. They keep trying to catch him up, but he goes anyway. And, and then, by some coincidence, there's a man that's drowning in his own water. This man has a liver problem, a kidney problem, a congenitive heart problem. This man was really sick. 
and, and the Pharisees would have seen him as really unclean. On the Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, this really sick man with these internal organs that are failing, and he's carrying a bunch of water because of it. And he, again, very unclean in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So there's guys there, and he says, hey, we all can see the man's sick. We all can see the man's unclean. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Same question that he asked back in Luke 6, 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, so, of course not would have to be the answer. When he asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, these Pharisees and scribes said, of course you can't heal on the Sabbath. That would have to be their answer, wouldn't it? Because they keep accusing him. But, but this Pharisee, this, this Pharisee was a ruler, so he was well-learned in the scriptures. The scribes would have been the, the best of the, of the religious lawyers. And they would have been very grounded in the Old Testament. So what does the Old Testament actually say about healing on the Sabbath? Well, let's see. We first see the Sabbath mentioned in Exodus 16, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. Now, this is before the law was given. Sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will, bake and boil what you will boil. All that is left over, lay aside to be kept until morning. On the sixth day, bake and boil whatever you're going to bake and boil. Do enough for tomorrow, and then leave it overnight, because tomorrow you're not to cook. So he laid aside till morning as Moses commanded them. It did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So there was a restriction on cooking food. The food was to be prepared the day before and eaten on the Sabbath. So like we talked about it, this Sabbath meal that Jesus is at right now, I can assure you that they, they prepared all that meal the day before, and then they had all of their ways to get around keeping it warm, and all the, the ways you could do that, certain kind of hay and stuff you could lay on there. But that meal would have been not prepared that morning because that was clear in the Old Testament teaching. So, we see in Exodus 20, when the law is given, here's we first see the Sabbath given in the law. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The word for work there is malaka. It means occupation or business. So, six days you labor and do all your business, all of your occupation. But the seventh day is a, day, a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourners within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So in God's law, we clearly see a prohibition from working on the Sabbath, from doing your occupation or your business. Do we see any mention of healing? We don't see any mention of healing, do we? We see the Sabbath law again mentioned in Exodus 31, 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, that day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath through their generation as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath was clearly a holy day, and there was no work to be done. It, God was serious about it. So, so these Pharisees having a seriousness about the Sabbath, that's not a problem. It should be serious about the Sabbath. God was serious about the Sabbath. So that wasn't the problem. Their desire to honor the Sabbath was a proper desire, and death was the punishment that God had prescribed in the Old Testament for those that violated it. And that was to be kept for Israel throughout all generations. But they had taken this, this law and they had added to it. They had 39, we've talked about this before many times, Shabbat laws. All the things you could do or couldn't do on the Sabbath. None of which was in the scriptures. These were all man-made laws of how you could then live out the Sabbath. And one of them was you don't get to heal. But nowhere is that written about in the scriptures. The Sabbath was, was spoken before the, the second generation was going to, into the promised land. It's the similar to, the, to where it was originally given in Exodus, but it adds this. You should remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So they were to indeed keep the Sabbath as a reminder of their deliverance from bondage. Forever. Keep the Sabbath do no work on it. Your maidservant, your ox, your donkey, don't do your occupation. Don't do your work that day. Exodus 35, 2. Six days work shall be done. But on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath, a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. So one other thing that's in the scriptures... No fire in the dwelling place. Do not make a fire to cook food. It's pretty clear what they were told. This, this is why, by, by the way, this is why strict Sabbatarians, which I believe are completely wrong about this, won't cook anything on Lord's Day. They won't go to a restaurant. Because they're saying, look, that still applies. Don't do any work and don't cook food. So, the Old Testament was clear about the Sabbath. Don't work, don't do your job, your occupation, and don't cook food. God modeled it 
in the desert by providing the manna, telling whatever you're going to bake and boil, do the day before. So those are the laws. There's nothing in there about healing. Don't work and don't cook. That's it. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Again, they would have to answer yes or no, it's not lawful. Because we're going to tell you it's wrong that you've done it. Like they have everywhere else you've been. But these, this, this Sanhedrin member, this Pharisee, and those scribes, they knew they had no scripture to quote that would tell them why it would be unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. There was no instructions from God concerning that matter. <laughs> Interestingly, the one thing they were told to remember when it was given to them in Deuteronomy was, remember the deliverance from bondage. This guy drowning in his own fluids is in bondage. That lady who was bent over was in bondage. The one thing they were to remember was that. That was caught, caught by God. So what was the response of this group, of this Pharisee and his scribes? They remained silent. They had no answer. They could not use God's word without twisting it to prohibit the healing on the Sabbath. Even though their man-made laws strictly prohibited, it's the same way they restricted the they, they required the ceremony of washing of the hand before you ate. Nothing in God's word could lead to that. So they were quiet. They remained silent. On the Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? By the way, responded to means answered. They didn't say anything. But they're mumbling and whispering about what's about to happen. Because remember, they're trying to catch him up. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. So then Jesus has mercy on the diseased man. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. He took him. It's an interesting word here, took him. It's the only time the word is used in all of the New Testament. Epilambanomai. It means to take hold of, to grasp, to lay hold or seize upon anything with the hands. It's a stronger word than just grab. It's he, he, he took hold of him. We, we get this picture of Jesus grasping this, this, this man swollen <coughs> with water. We, we get this picture of this man, Jesus touching this man who the Pharisees would have thought was unclean and dirty and shouldn't be touched. And Jesus not only touches him, he grasps him and he brings him in. The man who knows how fluid-filled he was, but he doesn't come to Jesus. Jesus grabs him and, and, and heals him. Which is gross to these scribes and Pharisees. He even touched somebody like that. Similar to that woman. He grabbed him. He healed him. When he grabbed him, whatever he needed, a new liver, a new kidney, or a new heart, he gave it to him. Whatever it was that we take diuretics for, Jesus fixed the problem. He healed him. He made them whole. And I just a quick <coughs> sidebar. This morning when I'm getting ready, I started crying. Because I was a man 
who was drowning in my own sin. I was drowning in my own body, if you will. And Christ touched me, and he made me whole. He took him, and he healed him. And he sent him away. This man did not need to be around these vile, worthless, heartless religious leaders who cared nothing for him. So he sent him away. Guessing he went away to tell everybody what had just happened to him. But he didn't need to be around this, this, this bunch of heartless, self-righteous, hateful group of men. So he healed him and he sent him away. And after this, this miracle of healing this, this, of this internally drowning man, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. And he said to them, which of you, because you know they, they didn't answer, but you know they, they don't think he should heal on the Sabbath. He's violating their way to heaven. They didn't answer him, but he knows that they're against him for that. So he says to them to, to expose their hypocrisy, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on Sabbath, they will not immediately pull him out. It's similar to the answer we saw back in Luke 13. Remember, he had healed this, this, this bent-over woman for 18 years with the extreme scoliosis. The ruler of synagogue indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath said to the people, there are six days in which we're about to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. She can come back when it's more convenient or appropriate in our religious system. Withhold mercy for now. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, it's not easy of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead her to wade or water. Look, Shabbat law allowed them to take their donkey and give it water, even though they were farmers and that was work. But they made a special exception. You can take your donkey and your ox to get water so they don't die. And he says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bowed for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He said these things, all his adversaries put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So here, similarly, we see, after Jesus heals this man with dropsy, he says to them, which of you having a son, which of you who are sitting here in judgment of this man being healed on the Sabbath, which of you, if your son fell into a well and was drowning, wouldn't pull him out immediately? You hypocrite. Andrew falls in a well, he's going to drown. You're going to get him out? Of course you are. And which of you having an ox, one of your machines, one of your $150,000 machines goes into, bad example, it's not alive, but goes into a well and it's drowning, you're going to lose, you're going to get it out of there. These have value to you. Your son has value and your ox have value. And so you're going to go grab them out right away. But this man right here, you don't care about him. This man made in the image of God, you don't care about him. You care more about your laws about your self-righteousness, about your religion, than this man made in the image of God. You hypocrite. Your love of your son would compel you to keep him from drowning. Your love of your money would compel you to get your ox out of there. But this man drowning in his own body, in his own fluids, 
You don't care about him. Let him drown. Because our rules are more important. Not for us, necessarily. We'll make special ways to feed our, our ox and donkey. We'll clearly get our son or our ox out of a well. But then, then, let him die. He's not any, of any value to us. Our religion is more important than that man. Not more important than my stuff, but more important than that man. Because that man is just a dirty, dropsy heaven sinner. You hypocrites. You whitewashed tombs. You legalists. You try and keep me from healing on the Sabbath. This man who, who has no value to you because he's unclean to you. You don't care about him. You don't care about you don't care about God and his people. You simply care about you. Your ox, your donkey, your son. You're lost. You're legalist. You're heartless. You're self-righteous. What happened next? Their mouths remained shut. And they could not reply to these things. Again, their mouths were shut. This is, this is actually what the truth will do to an, an honest person that really wants to listen. Like somebody like this that thinks that they, they value the Bible. They'll eventually shut, their mouths will be shut. And it's not now, they'll be shut when they stand before Jesus, but they'll be shut because there's no response. There's no response <laughs> to transgender wedding, or even transgender. There's no way to biblically argue for that. God made them male and female. Period. Now, what Christians want to do is say, yeah, okay, they're in sin, but we've got to keep loving them by calling them a he or a she if they want to be called a he or a she or a they or whatever they want to be called. Or calling, what's his name? Bruce Jenner. Maybe you can go by Renee. What's her name? His name? Caitlin. Caitlin. It's Bruce. His name is Bruce. Now, you can change your name. Look, Sophia Grace didn't have the middle name Grace. I changed her name. So before you call me a hypocrite, the reason I say he's Bruce is Bruce is a man's name, and he's a man. If he wants to stay a man and call himself Bruce, I think he's a little weird, but okay. Or Caitlin, maybe I'd call him Caitlin. You don't get to have me call you Caitlin because you, came, you became a woman. That's, that's not defensible. So, so their mouths were shut because they had nothing in the Old Testament that they could speak to him and tell him, yeah. And then they're exposed, too. They're exposed because, yeah, of course I'm going to get my son or my ox out. I'm not going to let them drown. But, yes, I am going to let that man drown. Luke 13, 17, he said these things. All his adversaries were put to shame. Luke 20, 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Luke 6, 5, remember? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is standing before them and he's saying, I'm going to do, just like he did a little earlier, he said, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the third day, until I, <coughs> till I'm finished. I'm going to do what I'm going to do on the Sabbath because Jesus, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And, and, and this man needs mercy. And I'm going to give him mercy. Their mouths were stopped. They were, they were self-righteous 
legalist hypocrites. They were putting yokes on others that they themselves would not even keep. They were, they were putting a yoke on Jesus, of all people, to not heal on the Sabbath because they said not. And yet they wouldn't follow the same thing if they had a son drowning or an ox drowning. It is, it is easy to see, it is easy to see the Pharisees' failure. It's easy to see their hypocrisy, their man-made laws, their, their inability to, to, to use the word of God for how they were trying. It's easy to see, but I'll tell you there's this for us. This is an application for us. You see, hypocrites, they use, they study the word. They study the word for ammunition against others, but they don't apply it to themselves. Amen. Do not study the word for ammunition against others that you will not apply to yourself, or you're just like these Pharisees, you're a hypocrite. Putting yokes on somebody else that you don't put on yourself. Studying the word so you can catch them up. See, see these, these Pharisees, they did these they knew their Bible backward and forward. They they knew it well. I mean, remember, if you would go with a rabbi at age seven, by age thirteen, you could like recite the whole Pentateuch from memory. They 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 knew their Bibles well. But they didn't use their Bibles to confront themselves, did they? They used it to confront others, to keep themselves in that position of power. <laughs> it's what Rome does. It's exactly what Rome does. Look at it. Husbands study the word. They know the word. So they can tell their wives how to be good wives. Wives study the word. They can tell their husbands how to be good husbands. How about this, husbands? How about if you read the husband part? And wife, how about if you read the wife part? And apply that to your life first. Before you start applying it to someone else. Parents with children. If I had a nickel for every time one of us gave our kids some, some law. And five minutes later, we're violating that law. And not trusting in Jesus for forgiveness for that, we study the word, hey, kids, you ever heard obey your parents? You ever heard that recited to you? Now, parents, have your kids heard? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is what dad's to do. Moms, do you spend as much time explaining to your children how the wife you're to be, or is it more studying the word that you can let them know how they're to be? Hypocrites want to, want to bring down anyone who confronts their sins with the word. It's a hypocrite that wants to bring down other people who confront them with the word of God. Don't be a hypocrite. When the word of God is brought to bear in your life, receive it. Believe it. Be changed. Don't target the person. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't put him on a cross. Hypocrites care a lot more about their man-made rules 
than they, they do about people being right in their hearts. That's what hypocrites do. They care a lot about external conformity. They don't care nearly about, as much about inward righteousness. <coughs> hypocrites want you to follow some rules, never mind what's really going on in here. I had lunch with somebody this week. I really believe he, he's a, one of the most, at least when I can tell, relatively moral people I, I know, I've known. From talking to him, he's really a pretty good actor. I mean, not actor like actor. He lives his life fairly moral. More moral than I ever lived my life, for sure. But what did I care about? His soul. Not giving him more laws to follow. Helping him to see his need to trust in Christ. Look, don't be someone who wants everybody to follow a bunch of rules. Care about your inward righteousness and their inward righteousness. Not about the rules they're following or not following. That's what hypocrites do. Hypocrites bend the rules for their own purposes. Well, we'll untie our axe and our donkey because we don't want to lose our precious resource, but you better not do your work. They, a hypocrite does whatever they got to do and then expects you to follow some rules. And the rules they're not following, we'll just not talk about those. We'll just talk about the rules they're not following. That's what a hypocrite does. And then the last thing these hypocrites do, because they, their mouths were silent, yes, but that didn't mean they were changed because they kept rejecting Jesus all the way to the cross. They were ignoring overwhelming evidence that they needed a Savior. They were ignoring that in order to persist in their sinful lives. See, hypocrites are those, these, these Pharisees, they're a model of somebody who would, would just continually ignore the evidence so they could keep persisting in their sin. Some of you in here ignore the evidence of the God you know exists and the forgiveness that can be found in Jesus Christ because you want to continue in your sin. And you ignore this overwhelming evidence, just like these Pharisees. We have got to root out hypocrisy in ourselves when it's confronted by the word of God or the people of God in ourselves it's one of the reasons that we are we're not Sabbatarians because the minute we want to start following those rules well, we're not we're not Old Testament tithers because then you got to bring the whole, all of it in. We want to see here that, that these Pharisees, these Pharisees were trusting in something besides Christ for their way to heaven. And they were expecting others to do the same. We don't want to be those people. We don't want to trust in other things besides Christ as our way to heaven, and we don't want to expect others to do that. Closing thought. Remember, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the hypocrisies. 
of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. These self-righteous Old Testament scholars were drowning in their hypocrisy. They were the ones that were drowning in their hypocrisy. They were more concerned with Jesus following the rules than they were about the suffering of a man-made image of God. They were more concerned about Jesus following their rules than the suffering of a man made in the image of God. More concerned with following their laws concerning the Sabbath than another man made in the image of God receiving rest from his malady. They didn't want this man to have rest from his malady. They wanted their rules to be followed. They, didn't, they weren't looking to the deliverance from their bondage. They weren't looking for deliverance from bondage from the Romans. They weren't looking for deliverance from the bondage of their souls from Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are to repent of any hypocrisy in our own lives and be prepared to confront others who are self-righteous hypocrites who don't know Christ as Lord. First, we need to make sure we uproot hypocrisy in our own lives and see where we're being hypocritical. And then we have got to be prepared, just like Jesus did, to confront others who are self-righteous hypocrites who don't know Christ as Lord. Most religious people you know are that. Most really pious people you know that want you to know of their piety. The Catholic who goes to Mass six times a week who says the rosary 150 times a day, who, who does, does the he, penance and confession and all the other, baptism and confirmation, all the other things, follows all of those rules <coughs> and has no trust in Christ but in those rules. That's what these Pharisees are doing. We have to be ready to confront people that are in that position. We have to uproot the hypocrisy in our own lives, and we have to be prepared to confront others who are self-righteous hypocrites who don't know Christ as Lord. If I had a nickel, that wouldn't have much, but I have quite a bit of people outside of this place that I've known that are Christians from my past that, that regularly want to let me know how I'm messing up. How the sermon I preached at Ryan's funeral was hateful and unloving. I'm not following the rules. It's not loving to not embrace your son and his homosexual friend. I get this kind of advice constantly. We have to be prepared to tell those Christians they're hypocrites and help them to see their trust is in me obeying some rules they put out there for me. They don't, give, they don't care if I have my trust in Christ or not. They just care if I'm doing right by them. Don't be that person and confront the people that are. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. We thank you again for the clear example that Jesus is for us. How he, he, he proves to these self-righteous hypocritical Pharisees that there's nothing that pro prohibit him from healing on the Sabbath. That they were hypocrites who 
made ways around the very laws that they place on the, on the, on the backs of others. Father, help us to be people who, who love you and love people, who obey Christ, who have our trust in him and not in what we do. Help us to not be people that have others to put the trust in what they do leading them like the Pharisees did into some <clears throat> works-based salvation. <clears throat> Let's look to Christ and put others to Christ. To your glory and his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I cannot tell.